Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. This is the EWN Radio Network. Welcome to On the Record with your host, Ashram Lux Lucid. All right, welcome to another episode of On the Record. I am your host, Astrum Lux Lucid. And today's special guest started playing guitar at 14 and had dreams of being a folk singer. In the early 70s, she joined an improv class which led to her becoming a founding member of The Groundlings, an improvisation and sketch comedy theater in Los Angeles. While there, she met her TV writing partner, Jonathan Stark, and their first job was as staff writers on Cheers, followed by Bob with Bob Newhart, The Nanny, Ellen, and The Drew Carey Show. In 1997, they won an Emmy and Peabody Award for writing the groundbreaking Coming Out episode of Ellen, and in 2001, they created the ABC comedy According to Jim. During this time, she was still writing songs, some of which were featured in TV shows. She's now come full circle and is pursuing her music full-time with three albums under her belt, one of which is a children's album she co-wrote with her daughter, Charlotte Dean. Please welcome Tracy Newman. Wow. I want to meet her. (laughs) (laughs) Right? She's awesome. Yeah. That's an awesome. That was a great intro. I wish we could. maybe, Maybe we'll just copy it down and we'll use it. There you go. There you go. Yeah. I'll send you a little MP3 clip of it. <laughs> you know, it doesn't mention uh, there was another show that we worked on that we actually ran called Hiller and Diller that that starred Richard Lewis and Kevin Nealon and Eugene Levy. And it was I, I always love to mention it because it was so much fun, even though it didn't succeed. Um, you know, when you write for television, a lot of times uh, if you're there for long enough, you're, you're on a lot of shows that fail. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, that was one of them. It ran for, I think we shot 13, but I, th- I don't think it was on the air for more than 11. And uh, it was the first time we got to run a show, but we didn't create it, which was a really good position to be in, which means that uh, when it was reviewed, it was the um, creators that got slammed. <laughs> mm, yeah, not there the, you go. Not the people running the show. So that was kind of an interesting <laughs> position to be in. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's go back a little bit and talk about that 14-year-old girl with the dream of being a folk singer, because I know you had an interesting little path, and it sounds like maybe we had the same parents, um, (laughs) that they, you know, they thought, that's crazy, why would you want to do that? Like my dad used to tell me, you have a better chance of winning the lottery than you do of being a rock star. My dream was to be a rock star. And um, somehow I ended up in college, and I surprisingly graduated. I don't know how that happened, but mm-hmm. um, anyhow, let's hear your story about um, that little journey into college, and then it looks like maybe the psychiatrist, the therapist's office. <laughs> how did that all come about? Yeah, about? you know, um, I don't know why my mom was so against me doing this. Um, I think she just. You know, I would sing around the house, and you know, when you're practicing and stuff, it's not like you sound good all the time. <laughs> um, and I wasn't writing songs. I was at that time doing, you know, folk songs that were popular and stuff. And I I think, frankly, it just irritated her. I, I think I, I sounded horrible probably at home. And she was like, <laughs> you know, always yelling for me to close the door and to stop singing and and so, you know, it mentions in my bio how I practiced on the diving board. I used to go out of the, we had a pool, and I would go out to the diving board, which was the farthest away from the house that I could get, and practice there. Because when you're practicing to play an instrument, it's horrible. You know, you're just going over the same stuff over and over and over until you master it. So um, I have more sympathy for my mother now as an adult and a mother. 
<laughs> than I did back then. I mean, I just thought she, you know, she just didn't think I was any good. But that's not it. It was just, uh, you know, consistently, I was, um, what's the word? Uh, really, really, really um, committed and obsessed with learning to play those songs. You know, which is what you need to, to get good. But it's mm-hmm. just irritating to be around. Yeah. Well, at least you didn't take up violin, right? <laughs> right. It wasn't a screechy instrument or, or piano that was so loud, but I think, you know, it probably wasn't the music she liked. That's another thing. You know, it's folk mm. music. And, I, you know, it wasn't Bob Dylan because it was. this was before Bob Dylan. This was like Kingston Trio stuff and, and uh, uh, just real folk songs at the time, at least in my mind. That's what I was doing, you know, as a real folk singer. Yeah. And uh you know, I'm sure it was uh was really irritating, but you know, and but my mother I think also really 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 did not want me to be in any form of show business, which is funny when you look at my, that my sister is Lorraine Newman from Saturday Night Live, you know, mm-hmm. which my mother at first didn't accept, but when she saw what was happening, there was, what could she possibly do? You know, yeah. and she went. She suddenly changed her tune and was thrilled with Lorraine's career and mine. Anything yeah. that I was doing in show business. Yeah. Because I think your, your parents' main worry is that you're not going to be able to make a living, and you're going to be heartbroken by the business. Yeah. Because that's yeah. how everybody looked at the business. Yeah, or you're going to be living off them forever. <laughs> or, or right, you're going to live at home and. Um, and and you know, whenever I came back, I was living in New York, but I'd come back to L.A. It's not like I got my own apartment. Eventually, I did. Yeah. But I mean, I was, I was, I was, I would come back and stay at, at my parents' house. Yeah. And, uh, right. I mean, I and I probably could have made a living, not not singing, God no. But I'm talking about you know, just taking a regular job, and I and I think I had all the time to practice because I didn't have to take a regular job. Yeah. It's always nice to have that. Yeah. yeah. So what how, how did you get do it? You know, I, I I realize that there there are more people out there that do have to do a regular 9 to 5 job or some kind of job and still have to practice to get good and I don't know um they have to be they're probably more gifted than I was. I don't think I was particularly gifted. I just was really really persistent. So how what what did you study in college and how long were you there? I was only I went to the University of Arizona for a year, but I never attended class, <laughs> and I right. also never bothered to drop out. So I had <laughs> uh, instead of incompletes, I had a whole semester of Fs. Wow. <laughs> mm-hmm. So that that didn't make my mother very happy, and that was yeah. all. And then I, ten years later, I went to. Santa Monica College, and, and which is a two-year, you know, city college, and, and graduated there with straight A's. Yeah. Because I knew what I wanted to study, and I loved it. But back, you know, some some people don't belong in college. They just, or at least not at that age. Yeah. Yeah, it's you know, not I for everyone. I yeah. didn't have a clue what to study. Yeah. I didn't know what was interesting to me. Yeah. So now you're... You're back in no, were you back in LA busking or were you busking in Arizona? I was busking in Arizona and then when I came back to LA my mother came and got me really. Uh <laughs> when she found out that I was not going to school and uh brought me back for therapy because of course I was crazy. And <laughs> so while I was in therapy though I was getting jobs in the local coffee house scene. You know, where you didn't get paid, but I mean, I was singing in all the local coffee houses in the. Uh, this was in the. This was in the sixties. Oh, wow. Yeah, and there were all. There was a huge folk music scene. I mean, it was. You know, folk music was. Um, like in 1963, I was on tour in a thing called um, uh, Hoot Nanny '63 which was a live show with 25 folk singers in it. Most of them were groups, but, like, I was a solo performer. And we played every major concert hall in the country twice. Wow. 
we went around the country. They were those those audiences were were jam packed. People couldn't get enough of folk music, and it didn't matter that there was no celebrity, no no big star. Hmm. That's how and popular it was. How were you traveling back then? Were you just all piling in a car and bus. heading out we were, we in were a bus? bus. I, I was the only uh, woman. Oh wow! Twenty twenty four men and me. Oh wow! Yeah, was wow. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. then, how did you get into the world of improv? Well, um, I went to New York in nineteen sixty, like the end of sixty four. Um, I went to New York, you know, to become a star, and uh, I was playing in clubs there, and um, I, I, I play, you know, I. I what I did was I I was I had a lot of opportunities presented to me, but didn't know how to take advantage of them. Like um, I mean, this is going to sound completely crazy. So when I was in New York, my manager was Ed McMahon. Okay. He was the host, you know, the co-host. He was the you know Johnny's Johnny Carson's sidekick, mm-hmm. and he was my manager because he saw me. We both went to the same vocal coach. Oh and, uh, wow! That vocal coach used to make all of his uh, clients, or whatever we were called, his victims is what he called us. He made us perform for each other. Like if I was having my lesson and Ed McMahon came in early for his lesson, I'd have to perform for Ed McMahon, or vice versa. Oh so wow! I, was, I, I met everybody there. Like the mamas and the papas went to him, um, and um, Peter Falk, the actor, who at that oh wow. Time, was it wasn't even Columbo yet he was it was another another character that he was doing that he was famous for um I might be Beretta actually was the name of that show oh and, I used uh, to love that show yeah right and uh Betty White was there oh wow and um I, I can't think of everybody but it was huge stars w- went to this vocal coach so anyway, so that's how I met Ed McMahon, and he had an idea for a children's show. And when he saw me, I guess he he thought, okay, this is this could be the host. So I had I went through this year that was very strange of Ed McMahon trying to get this kids show off the ground with this complete unknown, who uh, had no I had no idea what he saw in me. You know what I mean? <laughs> I didn't. I didn't, it was all, he came up with this kids show based on my personality, and it was called Travels with Tracy, and it was written by the Tonight Show writing staff, he had them write it. I know, it was a talk about opportunities, it was unbelievable, and I was working in gigs, you know, singing in clubs at night, and I'd be out till four in the morning, and I'd hang out at the improv. The original improv was on 44th and 9th. There was only one of them um, at that time, you know, the club, the improv. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was before it became um, like a household word. And uh, so I used to hang out there till four in the morning, and uh, everybody was there. You know, it was like Richard Pryor and Lily Tomlin and... Um, Rodney Dangerfield and uh, and a group of improvisers, a lot of improvisers. And I had really never seen improv. So all of a sudden I'm watching these great performers doing improv and I just was like dazzled. So after my time in New York and failing all the things I was doing there, I came back to L.A., and a couple of years went by, but eventually I, I I saw that there was a class, an improv class starting um, by this guy, Gary Austin. And uh, so I signed up for it, and I went there, and I brought my sister there. And then we turned into the Groundlings, the, the, that, that class. So we were like the founding members. And, um, and then Lorraine was discovered. You know, through uh, like Lily Tomlin came to the shows, and uh, she brought Lauren Michaels, and uh, the rest of that story is history. So, um, but that was how I ended up in improv. Huh. It was really and by failing at being a singer songwriter <laughs> in New York. <laughs> <laughs> so. and, 
And so when you were doing improv now, because you didn't go on to become an actor, you became, you went behind the scenes and started writing. How did that come about? Well, I was at that time, though, I was performing. I was performing in the shows at the Groundlings, and I was also teaching and occasionally directing the shows. Uh, and uh, with no, by the way, with no credentials, if you think about it, I, <laughs> I, I just understood it somehow. I understood how to teach it. I understood how to direct it, um, but I didn't have any uh, training because I just hung around it long enough to kind of understand what made me laugh. And that's mm-hmm. all I cared about. So um, some a, a good many of the people in the Groundlings became the people behind the scenes. I mean, if you looked at that time, let's say in the 80s, if you looked at the staffs of a lot of the sitcoms, there was always one or two Groundlings on the staff. Mm. And I, I don't know. I, I was doing commercials and stuff as an actress, but I, I never really – that was not my passion. I wasn't very good at it also. Probably if I'd been good at it, I would have been more passionate about it, but I just wasn't um, – I wasn't also wasn't competitive in that way. You know, I mean, I just thought all the people I was working with were so talented that the idea that I would – that I would be the out front when there were other, you know, when Lorraine was around, I would think, well, why would why would I be the star of this with Lorraine here? You know, she's mm-hmm. so funny, and yeah. uh, so were so were many of the other groundlings, people like Lynn Stewart. She was there. She was just brilliant, and uh, um, Edie McClurg was there, and uh, she, you know, you can look up her name. She, she she ended up doing a lot of things. So did so did Lynn Stewart. And um, people, uh, like there was a a girl named Robin Schiff there who was in her 20s and was smart enough to look around and say, hey, I'm writing a lot of these sketches. I could be doing this for a living. So she wrote a movie and she got it made. So she was one of the first people that really realized, hey, we can make money doing this. Hmm. You know, and took me another 10 years before it occurred to me that I could do that too. (laughs) Well, I was just having so much fun in the Groundlings. The Groundlings was was just, you know, it was like being in this big fun club. Yeah. And so, were you uh, writing during that time too? Like writing? Um, no, I wasn't writing stuff? sitcoms. I was. I I had a child, my Charlotte, my daughter, when I was, uh, and I got I got married in like around 1982. I mean, she was born in 82. I got married shortly before that, actually, like 81, and. Um, so my life drastically changed, and I kind of had to focus on one thing, um, or one or two things. And so I, I just—that's uh, when I started. You know, I directed some things, some plays, and I, I just—I started focusing on writing and directing and watching. I watched a lot of sitcoms. You know, when you have a kid, you mm. <laughs> after you put them to bed, you're kind of wiped <laughs> out. And I would just sit in bed and watch Cheers and some of the other shows that were on, and I. It didn't even occur to me that I could write that until my my writing partner, John Stark, we ran into each other somewhere and he said, hey, do you want to write a spec script together? So we wrote one and then we, we presented it to the people running Cheers who were our friends from the Groundlings. And at that time they were running Cheers and they hired us. Huh. That's another. That's an interesting thing about this business. It's not like we came out of nowhere we were prepared, but we knew yeah. people. It's really important. It's like not only it's not only who you know, but who knows you. Mm-hmm. So, and the people running uh, Cheers at the time, their name their names were Bill and Sherry Steinkellner. Uh, they had been in the Groundlings with us, so they knew that they could work with us. So for them to hire us as writers, and all they had to do was see that we could put it down on the page. So we we gave them a spec script, and they saw that we could do it. So why not have these friends in the room rather than strangers, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, at least friends you get along with. So uh, that was when you start on a show like Cheers, you know, uh, we were good writers, but it didn't really matter if we were good writers because, you know, if you start on a show like Cheers, you're going to get more work. You're going to keep working. So that was really the beginning. I mean, I was very aware that it was the beginning of a what could be a very big career. 
Yeah. As as much as I, you know, as I mean, you know, also I had a child. So working in television when you have a child is very, very, very tough because you're going to not see your kid. Yeah, you mean like on the actor side? Um, No, the writers, you know, the writers... The writers come in at 10, and then they leave when the script is done. Oh, so wow. Sometimes I was there. I was always walking her to school in the morning and, and having breakfast with her, but I almost never had dinner with her for a long time. And so, and I got divorced during that time also, so I had a nanny at home because so, every two weeks she was with me for two weeks. And that was a very tough time because I was always just rushing to get home in time to have dinner with her. Or to pick her up from school. You know, if you listen to my whole uh, second album there, um, there's a song called Carpool. Well, there was a period of time when I got to drive the carpool, which was a horrible, (laughs) horrible experience. But at least I got to be there. You know, it it was, this was, of course, when she was already a teenager. I jumped ahead. But, you know, I think a lot of women who drive, people who drive carpools will will relate to that song. I hate this school, it's a 40-minute drive. Why couldn't she go to the school nearby? I'm starving, why didn't I bring something to eat? Why did I wear shorts? I'm sticking to the seat. There's the volunteer security guard. She's going to make all of us move our cars. Why did I ever have a child? My life was so much easier pre-Charlotte. I had no
because this is always fascinates me. Like I, I think about this, and I, I and I kind of maybe had a uh, an insight. Maybe it was last night, but the whole process of just writing a script, like mm-hmm. it blows my mind because it's like you're writing out conversations, and yeah. you, and I think you sort of have to think ahead too. Like, well, where you know, describe that process because to me it's just like it's fascinating. Well, um, first of all, let's talk about there's a big difference between writing a script, to me anyway, a big difference between writing a script when you get into the details. For a television, uh, you know, a tele- half-hour comedy, which is you're writing a, essentially a 20, 21, 22 minutes of a story. You know, that's that's your story. That's how much time you have to tell a story. Whereas in, when you write a movie, whether it's a TV movie or, uh, you know, for out in a general release, uh, it's usually about 90 minutes you're responsible for and a number, you know, like three act breaks. And it's it's much more, it's the same thing, only bigger and longer. <laughs> and uh, so, because we wrote movies too, and... Um, you know, I much preferred writing twenty, twenty-one, twenty-two minutes with my partner than writing trying to write ninety minutes. Um, so yeah, um, let's see. How did it start? Well, I can't, uh, I can't stress enough how important it is to watch, watch television. When you've decided you're going to write, you need to watch the shows, and find out which shows you like and what fits with your sense of humor and. If you're going to write a spec script, write one of those. Like at, the, at one time, I'm, Curb Your Enthusiasm was my favorite show. So if I had been out there in the world writing spec scripts, that's what I would have written. And the spec script we wrote was Murphy Brown at the time. I don't know if you remember that show. Mm-hmm, yeah. But that's the, that's the script that got us our job on Cheers, other than the fact that we knew the executive producers. But, I mean, they needed a script, and that was the one. And... uh so let's see. You want to know the process really of writing. Well, you know, what you do is you you come up with a story, and if you're already on staff at a show, you, you have to pitch the story. Or they pitch a story to you. It works that way too. And they they assign the story to you. But let's say I come in and, you know, we John and I would come in and pitch a story, and they'd say, okay, we'll do an outline on that. And then we would do, a, in our case, a very detailed outline. Not every writer does that. That's how we did it, though, because we liked it when our outline was almost the script. So if the script was going to be 50 pages, the outline was probably going to be 15, 16 pages. Um, and the difference is, it, in, in, you know, it's single space, so really <laughs> those outlines were really long. And they mm. had dialogue in them. So they, they were like halfway, th- you know, for us, it was like practically the script, because writing the script from an outline that's been accepted is pretty easy for us. So you know, you when you're writing an outline, you break down the story into you break it down into scenes, but also into beats. And when it's a sitcom, you have to have jokes, and even the outline, it's good if it has some jokes in it. So um, we spent more time on the outlines than the scripts. And I'm not sure huh. what your question really is. Like you're saying, how, how is that? Like with dialogue, how to write dialogue? Yeah, well, it just seems like, you know, I'm thinking of like you have, uh, I, I'm currently in a, um, uh, uh, I'm watching this show Parenthood on Netflix. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm kind of getting sucked in too much every day watching it. <laughs> you know? That's, isn't that like, a one-hour one show? Episode, one more episode. Uh, I think it's, it's Give or take, drama, maybe 45. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I was thinking about it last, I think it was last night I was actually thinking about it. I'm watching it, and I'm like, how do they come up with this stuff? Like, And then there's like, you know, we're on like season five, mm-hmm. and, you know, you've how do you keep the story going? And is it all written out way in advance, or do you develop it as it's, it, you know, as it's going along, as it's filming? And just that, that whole thing, that whole process of like, how do you know that you're going to have them act this way and then say this way, say this well, thing? Well, because and... first of all, you're the one who's deciding it. Yeah, yeah. It's not like how do you know it? You're just making, you're just creating it. But also, think, I mean, you just look at a 
look at people's real lives. There's so much information and so many ideas that come from people's real lives. I mean, when you have a writing staff of 12 people, like we, when we did, ran According to Jim when we created that show, we hired people who were kids. Because mm. cause in, in the show, you know, the it was uh, Courtney Thorne-Smith and Jim Belushi had uh, three or four kids. I can't even remember right now. Let's see, they had the two girls and a baby at the time that I that we started. So it was three children. So we hired writers who were married with children so that they could be t- we could take things from their their own lives. I mean, I used to I walk all the time in my neighborhood and at one point when I was working on according to Jim, the my neighbors across the street, there were five children. And this wow. terrific wife and, um, you know, mother and um, and a father who everybody was young and strong and energetic. And I used to go over there and just sit in the, in the kitchen with her sometimes and just watch what was going on and then just take ideas. Hmm. Didn't care. Yeah. I mean, I got a lot of stuff because she had a one thing she had was she besides all these kids running around was a baby. So it was like I hadn't been around a baby in a long time. And mm. so I just watched what was going on with the baby because there was a baby on our show. And I got an idea all the time. Every time I went over there, I got I got ideas. Yeah. You know, that, I mean, that's and that's where you get them. You, you don't you don't imagine them. You remember them. Yeah. You don't necessarily okay. make them up. You just remember them. You have a good memory or you, you're uh-huh. observant. Okay. Yeah. And that's, yeah, that's that really, sense. that's, in fact, when I was in improv, when I was first starting out in improv, my improv teacher, uh, who was a guy named Tom Maxwell, who ran the Groundlings for a long time after Gary Austin left. Uh, Gary Austin was the creator, but he left after a while. And I remember Tom Maxwell, I, I would see him performing, you know, because he, he was teaching and directing, but he was also a performer there. And he had he had such great material all the time on stage in an improv, and I remember saying to him, "How do you make this stuff up?" And he said, "He was Southern, and he said, uh, I'm not making it up. I'm remembering it.' Remember, I talked about the improv, how Lily Tomlin was hanging out at the improv in New York. I she used to do these characters, and I said, "Where are you getting these?" And she said, "From my backyard." These were all of her relatives that would come to tea parties and stuff in her backyard, and she was just imitating her aunts and her mom, and you know it was a it was a memory. So, and you look at a show like Transparent, which is so brilliant. Now I don't know where Jill Salloway really. I mean, I'm sure she's gotten a lot of that from real life. I don't know if <laughs> if Jill Salloway's real life includes a. Uh, transgender person and and everybody's gay and everybody you know it's like it's like um pretty much of a mishmash of everything that's out there in the world but uh she's had some experiences that have led her in this direction we'll be right back i'm looking for a certain kind of woman and i think you know her she's an entrepreneur that is highly connected successful significant in her own industry and considered the go-to woman in her community. She's received so much from so many women in business, she's ready to give back to others on their journey, lifting as she climbs. Hi, this is Sandra Yancey, and I'm the founder and CEO of eWomen Network. I'm looking to connect with the woman I've just described who lives in your community so that we might have a conversation about how eWomen Network's proven success system can provide her a platform to elevate her success and ability to support women in business. Our international community of managing directors are influencing the speed of success for women in business around the world. If that sounds like something that you want to be part of or know someone we should talk with, send an email to managingdirector at eWomenNetwork.com. That's managingdirector at eWomenNetwork.com. And let's start the conversation. And we're back on the record. That totally makes sense now. You know, totally. You just you draw on what you know, you yeah. draw on what you see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, if you you know, if you're in a writing class, and um, you know, there you're you're trying to 
I don't know what you know whatever the assignment is. The easiest thing is to take something from your own life. It's always the easiest thing. It's the most natural thing. It flows from you. You may not feel comfortable about sharing it, but that's that's sort of where the art of it comes in where you say, "Okay, I'm going to couch this in something where people aren't going to immediately say, "Oh, this must be her life." Mm. You know, I'm going to put this in another country, <laughs> change everybody's name. Well, that's fine. But, you know, it's always going to be easier if you're drawing from the um, the emotional content and the uh, cultural content and everything that you're actually living. Yeah. That's just, that's just really, like, blowing me away because that's, like, that's so simple. And I'm thinking, like, I'm looking at, like, songs that I've written and mm-hmm. stuff like that. And even, like, in school when you had to write a story, it, I never even thought to draw from what what I already know. You know, I would yeah, always, like, go off into fantasy it. land. <laughs> right. And that's I wonder okay it's been too. so hard for me. <laughs> but it's okay, too. There are some people who really can write that stuff. But... But if you think about it, why is that assignment what I did over my summer vacation? That's like a joke, right? Everybody has to write that at some point. (laughs) Well, you know, you know what you did, so you you know what to write. You know, you may not think it's interesting enough, but if you just write down some of the things that happen, you'll find that it's pretty interesting and unique. Yeah. You know, if you and just, write, you you just your... sat down and wrote down how you start your day. How do you start your day? What do you do? What are the little steps that lead to you walking out the door in the morning on a normal day? If you ever do walk out the door, you know, what goes on? I mean, what's your coffee routine? What's your breakfast routine? What's your, who do you deal with in the morning? What's, you know, what, what's your common morning is going to be unique, yeah. In in some ways. I mean, uh you know, maybe like everybody, well you I get up, I have my I take a shower, I have my coffee, but details. Mhm. Like what is your shower like? It's going to be completely unique. Yeah. Yeah. Wow, mm-hmm. that's that's like yeah, such a, uh, a gold nugget right there. <laughs> it's yeah. like woohoo. <laughs> wow. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, and you know, if you think about Real details, like one thing I know yeah. is like when I'm going to take a shower, I know that I'm going to turn the water on and I'm going to close the door till the water gets hot. And I've been <laughs> observing recently that the water is splashing through the door. The door is not closing all the way. I can't get it to close all the way. So that means that when I'm taking the shower, the water is splashing through the door onto the floor. So that's made me have to get extra mats there. Till I get that fixed. You know, these are just, this is particular to me, but it's not as simple mm-hmm. as I get up and I take a shower. Now I'm dealing with this splashing that's happening. You know, it's not not that interesting, but I'm just saying it's it's particular to me. Not everybody gets up and takes a shower and has the water splashing through the door. Yeah. You but know? just that that going detailed into that and presenting it in a, in a certain way, it's going to be interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Especially if you add an emotional thing to it. In other words, mm-hmm. if you're uh if you happen to be in a hurry and you have an important interview happening and you have to look good and you now are dealing with the stuff you deal with every morning. Um which ordinarily you can just go through because you're not in a hurry necessarily. Mm-hmm. And now you're you're in a hurry and so now you put that attitude and you're worried, you're nervous. So all the things that happen, like when you squeeze a uh, face cream out and you squeeze out too much, so you have to take the lid off and you have to put some of it back, and all the things that happen because you're nervous. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. uh, all of those details. And that's when you see a, a terrific movie, you know, uh, usually those kinds of things are written by women where you see all the details that the woman's going through because she's getting ready and she's nervous. Mhm. Yeah. It's really funny, and it's really funny if it's true, <laughs> and people recognize it, even though maybe they don't go through that specific thing. They recognize the feeling and the what ha- you know the sort of incompetence that comes over you when you're nervous. <laughs> yeah. Did you 
being developing these skills of observation, was there a mentor or somebody in your life who helped you with this, or you just kind of naturally started being like, well, if I you know watch more sitcoms, I'm going to you know see how they write, and then if I start paying attention to life, I'm going to be able to incorporate like. What was your... That's an interesting question. I would say no, that I did not have a mentor and that I was writing songs before I... Let's talk about songwriting for a minute. I was writing uh-huh. songs before I started writing for television, but I was not writing them as well. So when I stopped writing television, number one, one of my mentors, of course, is Harriet. So I, I, I did go to Harriet's class, and Harriet does focus on... Uh, um, detail and uh, telling the truth, not necessarily with all of the f- true facts, but the truth, the, the essential truth of the song. So uh, in that respect, Harriet was my mentor, but, but writing for television, having to tell a story in 22 minutes that has that's funny and has emotional content and maybe makes you cry and laugh, or laugh and cry is what I mean, uh, you, you can do the same thing in four minutes or three and a half minutes in a song if you understand how to focus on what the what the emotional through line is of something. Mm. So Harriet is, is a great mentor um, for songwriting, but really writing for television was huge. My, my songwriting got so much better after I wrote for 16 years on television. Yeah, you, now you have a, a greater understanding of the emotional component, mm-hmm. and and yeah, like you said, you've got to be more efficient. So wow, yeah, yeah, because I, yeah, you know, also- as, as I'm listening to your songs, they're like they're very, they're like I thought immediately storyteller. Like you are a storyteller songwriter. You oh, know, well, like thank you. You know, you, you can. To, did you listen to Waffle Boy? No, I didn't listen to Waffle Boy. It's on my first uh, CD, the yellow CD, the orange okay. one. Okay. Okay. That's a true. That's a true kind of a true story. I mean, obviously, I embellished it and I added things to make the ending stronger. But, but that was from. That's like being a journalist. I mean, I I really went to a Waffle House and sat at the counter and watched the story unfold, and then embellished the ending. But if you listen to that song and you'll you'll totally understand you can do you don't it doesn't have to be a song to do what I did there that could be a movie that could be a that could be a uh, film short that could be a cartoon that whole song is is a complete story in five minutes or five and a half minutes it's a long one of my longer songs and um but it's 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 just answering all the journalistic questions, really, of where are you, uh, you know, when is it, you know, and in that case it's Sunday morning, so it's the busiest time for a Waffle House, and um, and what and what happens? It's the where, what, and when, and just answered all that, and I just wrote it down as it was happening. I didn't know I was going to make a song. I just saw this emotional thing playing out in front of me and I thought I'm going to jot this down and then it took about a year to write the song because to really write you know to write a concise story that's such a full story as that one is in a filmic way in a way that you can see what's going on really see it was very hard to write but I had all of the ingredients except for the and I had the ending, but not the kind of a have a, uh, a little added thing at the end that is unexpected and didn't happen. I had to make that up. But it, you know, when you're making something up, also you're saying, well, what if, what if the emotional situation was charged in this way and it was going on along, and then this happened? What, what would happen emotionally then? So you know that's. That's how that song was created, but it was mostly the truth. There's a new guy making waffles today at the Waffle House. It's Sunday morning and busy as it can be. I take a last available seat at the counter. 
where the new guy's stationed right in front of me. All four of his machines are overflowing with batter. It's oozing down the cabinet to the floor. It's two inches deep, he can hardly keep his footing. Three waitresses are waiting for waffles. If he can't make them, they can't serve them. Shouldn't us diners take a closer look at him? Five foot five, barely seventeen. Legs tangled up in dirty apron strings. Really bad skin, two broken teeth. Arms like sticks poking out of his sleeves. A chef's hat. Teetering on his big ears He's sweating like a pig He's fighting back with tears And this trial by fire The boy who mends the waffle iron Well, the buzzer sounds The waffle's ready So he lifts the lid He can't ease the waffle out, so he grabs the fork. He stabs at the waffle, it breaks into little pieces. He digs them out and flicks them on the floor. A young waitress can't resist, she tries to help him. But the man in charge of eggs throws her a look. She backs away, I guess the egg man is the owner Or the father of this awkward would-be cook Of waffles If he can't make them, they can't serve them We're all thinking that this job's too much for him Five foot five, barely seventeen Legs tangled up in dirty apron strings Really bad skin, two broken teeth Arms like sticks poking out of the sleeve A chef's hat teetering on his big ears He's sweating like a pig, fighting back with tears Ain't it time to fire The boy who mends the waffle The boy who made 
Wow, that's a that's like I'm speechless at how awesome that is to really take it to that level, you know. Yeah, and, and if you think in terms of a storyboard, you know, mm, you see yeah. people in movies, you know, in advertising having to do storyboards or cartoons or whatever. Look, you know, just car- comic books as storyboards. That's what they are. If you mm-hmm. if you can say, okay, what happens here, and then what exactly happens here, and where's where are his hands, for instance, when this is happening, and who's looking at him, and you know, and what's making him nervous, besides the obvious, or what's an added thing that I can add that's that's not really happening, but what would add to this, stuff like that. Yeah. Wow. That's great. So along this sort of mentor theme, um, what was what would you say to this point is your biggest lesson that you've had to learn? Uh, I think probably as a songwriter, one of the most important lessons, and this was something that is really, really stressed in Harriet's class, and Harriet as a songwriter follows this, is to uh, to speak in pictures. Hmm. You know, um, to tell your story in pictures. It's one thing to say, uh, you know, her heart was breaking. It's another thing to see her trying to make a scrambled egg for herself when her heart is breaking. And what does that look like? Mm, Yeah. What does it look like when someone's trying to do the normal things of the day when their heart is breaking? You don't have to say that their heart is breaking if you can draw it, you know, if you can make a picture of it, if you can describe those normal mundane things through that filter. Yeah. Or that if someone's filled with joy, you know, they're about to get married, what does that normal daily routine look like then? You know, um, and Harriet really stresses that, and that was just natural to me after writing sitcoms because I can't you can't you can't say her heart is breaking Mm -hmm. you have to be able to describe what it is the person the actress needs to know what am I doing Mm -hmm. saying what am I doing don't tell me what I'm feeling show me yeah wow because because if you if you have if you tell somebody uh Okay, what's happening to your character here is she, you know the guy just broke up with you, your heart is breaking, and um you're driving, and then they're gonna want to say well how how do you do you want me to be crying because I can do that mm. do you want me to be uh almost hitting things with my car? Do you want me to be, have? Is is my child in the car with me? Am I ignoring her? You know, these are all things you can actually, you can give her a whole bunch of activities, and then and then she knows because the guy just broke up with her. She knows that her heart is breaking. So, a good actress will will just filter everything she's doing through that emotion. Mm. You don't have to yeah. say it. The actresses and actors hate it when you write detailed, uh, you know, descriptions within a dialogue. She's crying here. She's because they'll surprise you. Yeah. If you don't tell them what to do emotionally. They'll if you just set the set the stage for them. A mm-hmm. good actress uh, will come up with something you didn't think of that will be much more powerful. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. And I learned that really from writing. I didn't know that. I was always surprised by good performers. Mm. How much better my material looked. <laughs> we'll be right back. Hi, I'm Sandra Yancey, founder and CEO of eWomen Network. One of my mottos for business owners is, you can't do it alone. Whether you're in the startup stage of your business or you're scaling, you can't grow without relationships to provide support, wisdom, and new customers. eWomen Network is your home to connect with other women entrepreneurs who have been where you are or are experiencing the same challenges. We have chapters across the U.S. and Canada that have monthly events, 
featuring our trademarked process called Accelerated Networking to ensure you get the contacts, resources, and leads you need to grow your business. And once you become a member, you get many benefits, including two one-on-one coaching sessions, unlimited access to our membership database, your own personal profile page, and discounts on products and services with our business partners, such as UPS and American Express Open. Join the eWomen Network community and let us help you live your dream. For details, visit eWomenNetwork.com. And we're back on the record. Tracy, this has been an absolutely uh, just amazing interview. I'm really digging this. Um, But we're nearing the end, and Mm -hmm. I usually like to save a few minutes for you to share some final words of wisdom with us. Oh, well, the first words of wisdom, even though I know you're in Austin, is I'm doing a show at a place called The East Spot, which is a, a restaurant called Vitello's in Studio City on February 25th at 8 o'clock, and uh, maybe Liza, my assistant, can send you some information about it so that if you're going to, you can maybe post it. It would be helpful. That's okay. my words of wisdom. Uh, do PR for all your gigs. That's my words there of wisdom. There you go. <laughs> no, I, I just say, you know, uh, the only way to fail is to quit. That's probably the most important thing that I can say to anybody because, you know, you can be sitting in front of your computer trying to write something and, and you can just get up and walk away or you can force yourself to stay there and and trust that something will eventually come out if you're actually working. Hmm. It's not going to happen if you're not working, you know, or, or expecting yourself to just do something. You know, you can, you as long as you're sitting and writing, uh, you can whatever it is you're writing, you 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 can't even sometimes evaluate it till the next day. But you look at it and say, oh, this is all crap. But wait a minute, look at this thing. You know, mm-hmm. why didn't I see that? Well, now I'm seeing it. You know, and then suddenly you get inspired. It's pretty easy to write when you're inspired. Well, folks, that wraps up another episode of On the Record. Tune in next week.
Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.